from high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah. It's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Friday, June 16th. EZB Farm is opening a new farm stand on Saturday. People will now be able to pick up fresh produce and prepared foods like salad dressing and sourdough bread at the farm's new storefront on East Easy Street in Spanish Valley. The 17th, we're going to have a grand opening and as well as a Father's Day brunch. This is Mel Eliason, the farm stand and kitchen manager. Come by and check out the farm stand. We're going to be selling produce and some uh, dressings. And you can also just have refreshments and there'll be muffins, but... The brunch will be a nice outdoor brunch, and me and Chef Emily are going to be catering that. Nice. What's on the menu? Frittatas and bacon and uh, beautiful vegetable salads all from the farm here and um, desserts and drinks. You said you were making bread and dressing? For the farm stand, we're going to be doing sourdough bread. Um, We're going to put that on barn to door because you're going to have to pre-order that. But dressing, sauces, dips, pre-made salads will be in the farm stand, rotating local uh, based on the local variety of the the farm at the moment. Eliason is still working out the details, but for right now, she knows the farm stand will be open weekly, Wednesday through Friday. Are you just going to be selling everything that you're growing and like whatever is being harvested? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have extras of whatever's growing out in the field. So this week we'll have, you know, obviously salad greens and lettuce heads and obviously kale radishes, turnips. What's uh, the hot crop right now? Purple top turnips. If you're not a turnip person, that's okay because if you just roast them really, really well in the oven, they're like the most magical thing ever. Um, But also cabbages. Cabbages are probably the hot commodity right now because they are gigantic and beautiful and picture perfect. Has this year been a good harvest year? This has been an amazing harvest year. Um, Yeah, like double to triple the amount of crops being grown. Just because of all the water? Um, that certainly has helped, but just because of just increased efficiencies in all facets. Did you do something different at the farm to like produce more crops? Yeah. So intercropping, um, which means planting different items that can be cropped out, as in like that they grow faster than other crops, like planting lettuce with tomatoes. So before the tomatoes are overcasting a shadow on the lettuce. The lettuce has already to be harvested and that can be same with herbs, planting herbs in areas where like cabbages are growing and same with onions. You can do that with onions too, planting lettuce heads with onions and that also keeps the deer away. The stand is located in front of the farm in a newly renovated building. And then in that same building, we have a commercial kitchen for chefs to rent out, um, bakers to rent out, and then in the back is our wash pack area. Could I go look at where the farm stand will be? It'll be like two full doors of prepared goods and uh, produce that you can buy. And it's going to be a self-pay system. And we encourage people to like return their bottles because we bought all nice glass bottles for dressings and stuff. That way we can reuse them and they get credit. Just come. It's going to be popping and you'll like never have to go to the grocery store again because all your vegetable needs will be taken care of. And where is the brunch going to happen? Brunch is going to be out here. Right back behind the farm stand, under the trees, there's going to be tents set up and picnic tables sent up. So be lots of beautiful area to sit and enjoy brunch. And there's going to be live music as well. You can find more information about the farm stand at their website, easybfarm.com. The Colorado River will be getting a new set of rules soon. Federal officials recently kicked off the process to rewrite the guidelines for the Southwest's key water source. KUNC's Luke Runyon has more. 
The river's current set of rules expire within the next four years. They were drafted in response to rapid declines in water levels at key reservoirs. Ongoing dry conditions have forced the region's leaders to cobble together emergency short-term agreements to scale back water use as climate change shrinks the river's flows. The state of Colorado's top river negotiator, Becky Mitchell, says that's not sustainable. All water users across the basin need to be secure and certain. The way we do that is not try to preserve the way that we are doing things now, but adapt. The next set of rules could be in place for decades. Federal officials expect to release a draft of those rules by the end of next year. I'm Luke Runyon. A community meeting was recently held on black lung disease among retired Navajo coal miners in Farmington, New Mexico. KSJD's Chris Clements has more. The meeting was hosted by Positive Nature Home Care, a home health care company which primarily assists uranium miners. Lawrence Bekus is a former coal miner who worked at the San Juan and Navajo mines for decades. He says he hopes he doesn't have black lung from exposure to coal dust in the mines, but that he isn't sure. A lot of dust, that's all I did every day. Yeah, it, it got real bad during the winters. I mean, um, windy over at uh, San Juan first, and then yet in Navajo North, I was in the preparation plant all this time. Then we had to deal with this every day in the, in the tunnel, around crushers, rollers, c- conveyor belts. Bekus also says he decided to attend this latest meeting to learn more about how to get tested for black lung, as well as the federal benefits available to some coal miners who are disabled by the disease. I'm Chris Clements. Competition among skiers can be fierce in Wyoming's Jackson Hole. Winter sports training doesn't end in the summer, though, and one Jackson resident hopes to break a record in the next few years. He wants to become the first Jordanian athlete to compete in the Winter Olympics. KHOL's Emily Cohen has more. Sharif Zawida is no stranger to adventure. He skied the Grand Teton on snowblades, a short ski, just for the bragging rights. He spent three winters living outside in a children's teepee in the woods at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort because it was a free place to live. And now he's training for a new challenge, Olympic alpine ski racing. piece of it being, I have no race background. You know, I ski really well. I've done a bunch of ridiculous things on snowblades around this valley, but that's not the same as racing. There may be a few U.S. Olympic hopefuls in Jackson Hole, one of the country's premier skiing destinations and training grounds. But if all goes according to plan, Zawida will compete for the Jordanians, becoming the first from the country to compete in the Winter Games. If I get to be that person and and again, fuse my heritage and my passion. I don't know that there's many other people better suited for this one destiny. He grew up in Seattle, the son of Jordanian immigrants. Three of my four grandparents are from the same village. I can trace back my lineage, like 16 grandfathers all in that same village. Zawida says the skiing bug bit him at a young age. He learned to ski with his family. He later moved to Jackson Hole for a season after college, and in a tale as old as the Tetons, he fell in love with Wyoming and stayed. He now has lived here for two decades. Here I am at 43, still skiing every day. But as a Jordanian growing up in the U.S., Zawida says he's often felt out of place in the ski world. 
now there's definitely more diversity in Jackson than there was 20 years ago when I moved here. But 20 years ago, brown people skiing at Jackson Hole wasn't a thing. That was like- so why does friend Benjamin Alexander is a skier from Jamaica who competed in the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing? He says more countries typically participate in the summer games. So there's a huge disparity between the two, predominantly because of geographic necessities, because of cost, equipment, institutionalized knowledge that's required to make the equipment work. Alexander is trying to expand participation in winter sports and diversify skiing. He's working with the Jamaican Ski Federation to bring the next generation of Jamaican kids to the Youth Winter Olympics in 2024. If you look at where most people of color are based in this country, they're in urban centers. They're unlikely to have parents that ski Um, And they're also unlikely to have parents with a high level of disposable income. He's inspired by new faces in prominent positions in the sport. And so I think what has to happen is there need to be more ambassadors, such as Sharif, such as myself, that prove that this thing is exciting, that it's interesting. So why does partner Luis Sanso agrees? I do think the Olympics represents a, a certain group of people who have training as embedded in their socioeconomic structure and being able to be, be, be the best. So the big question is, because the Olympics representing that population, so it's representing um, a place where everyone comes from all parts of the world to to gather and to and to compete. That creates diversity and, and bridges our differences with sports. Sanso says in the years they've been together, she's seen Zawida take on all kinds of challenges. He will have many goals in his life that seem crazy to people. They're not crazy at all to me. That's just who Sharif is. So Wida says his biggest obstacle in making the Olympics is his age. He's older than his competition. And in his first race this past March in Big Sky, Montana, he fell on his first day. He finished 20 seconds behind the top skiers. You know, the first race I did in Big Sky, I was going up against a bunch of 17, 18 and 19 year old kids. They're just stronger and better. And, you know, I ski 100 days a year. I wouldn't think that skiing a one-minute race course would make me tired, but my legs were burning. I was breathing heavy at the end. Um, And so I think there's a bit of training that needs to happen from a strength training perspective, not just the ski training. It's not just the physical differences between him and his teenage competition, but also the challenge of finding the time to fit it all into his life. I own a business. I have a relationship, you know, I have another job teaching skiing here in Jackson, trying to balance all of that and have any kind of life and then focus on racing is just a lot to to juggle. But with two and a half years to train, Zawida thinks he has a good shot. And if he makes the Winter Olympics in Italy in 2026, there will be lots of Wyomingites and Jordanians cheering him on. I'm Emily Cohen. The Moab City Council was in session this week. So, what happened at the what happened at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting? Moab Sun News editor Maggie McGuire has the answer. At the Moab City Council meeting, elected officials approved the city's 2023-2024 budget and reviewed the city's fraud risk assessment, which came back as very low. The council also approved annexation and rezoning for a development of 72 residential housing units along with retail and residential space along Highway 191 in the south end of town. City Finance Director Ben Billingsley also announced his resignation, saying he wanted to spend more time with family. And now, the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Some local residents are upset over plans for a new wastewater treatment plant that would serve a future development near the Colorado River. 
Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent speaks with Molly Marcello about the issue. About 50 local Grand and San Juan County residents signed a letter protesting a proposed wastewater treatment plant that would go up on the shores of the Colorado River on Caden Creek Boulevard. Um, As folks may know, this treatment plant would be built to service a new development that is currently envisioned to have about 580 units of, of housing and overnight accommodations, as well as commercial space and recreational facilities. So a very large development that would be built on about 180 acres um, along Cane Creek Boulevard. And as you explained, you know, last week, this development needs its own wastewater treatment plant. Is that right? It's correct. It lies outside of the realm of Moab City. It does lie within unincorporated Grand County. And um, I think the intent had always been to build its own wastewater treatment plant. But the developers did need to go through kind of a formal process last year of asking Grand County if they would provide sewer service. And Grand County said no, because they don't actually provide sewer service as an agency. Uh, And then that could kind of clear the way for them to build this treatment plant. So the permit has not been given yet. And that's actually this letter was submitted to um, the State Division of Water Quality during the public comment process for this permit. Now, this protest, 50 residents have signed on to this letter. Tell us about it. Yeah, the letter was penned by John Weisheit, who's the conservation director of a local nonprofit, uh, Living Rivers and Colorado Riverkeeper. Uh, He got about 50 residents to sign on to it. And essentially, the letter says that the developers uh, for the project are, quote, insensitive to the realities of geography and climate. The letter was primarily focused on scientific research about paleo floods Mm -hmm. and these enormous floods that folks have shown have roared down the Colorado River corridor Mm -hmm. over the last couple hundred years, the last couple thousand years. And these floods have hit levels of 250,000 to 300,000 cubic feet per second, which is kind of unimaginable. Mm -hmm. Um, So the argument is that this development would be extraordinarily susceptible to a flood, even much smaller than those. Mm -hmm. And if there's a wastewater treatment plant right along the banks of the Colorado River that could be compromised very quickly. Mm. Okay, so there's a lot to take into consideration. The entity considering it is the Utah Division of Water Quality. Yes, exactly. Within the Utah Department of Environmental Quality. And they are considering whether or not to hold a public hearing. That was one of the letter's requests, is that there be like a public meeting or a public hearing so developers Mm -hmm. can liaise with the public a little bit more. Uh, And a spokesperson uh, for the state said that they're reviewing comments, um, but that they'll generally schedule a public hearing if comments do request it. I I should note also, I was able to speak with one of the developers, Trent Arnold, about this, and he declined to to comment on some of the more technical concerns Mm -hmm. within the letter. He said that would be better addressed by the engineers, but he said that the wastewater treatment plant would go at essentially the highest point on the property in a a man-made cave, so Mm -hmm. not in the lowlands that you see along the boulevard, and that it's actually something like 16 feet higher than Moab City's own uh, Mm -hmm. facility, 10 to 15 Mm -hmm. feet. So, you know, if this one were submerged, the argument goes that Moab City's wastewater facility would already be Mm -hmm. underwater. Okay. All right. So he's saying that this wastewater treatment plant would actually be higher than um, those lowlands. Anything else to say about this piece, Sophia? I think uh, look forward to more coverage. We're going to be having a longer conversation with um, at least one of the developers over the next couple of weeks. And we look forward to continuing to cover this because it's certainly a big story. So moving on, there is more in the Times Independent. Let's go to Moab City. What is going on with annexation in Moab City? Yeah, Moab City actually just grew uh, by about three acres after City Council on Tuesday voted four to one to annex uh, that land. It lies along Highway 191 near Aggie Boulevard to help the construction of a 72-unit apartment complex, um, which would be half restricted for workforce housing. 
Okay, half restricted for workforce housing. Tell us the details. So the reason that this land was being annexed is because there are some more liberal zoning regulations in the city that wouldn't be allowed if if Mm. the land remained in unincorporated uh, Grand County. For example, building heights can be 40 feet in the city as opposed to 35 feet in the county. So that helps, you know, make this development pencil. Um, The applicant, Ellen Weinstein, has been um, developing housing for over 10 years um, and she said that since 2018, she's been focusing solely on workforce housing projects. Hmm. Um, so there would be three-story walk-ups uh, planned for Moab. And she also added that to be considered as a viable tenant for any of these units, um, folks would only have to make an income of about $36,000 a year, mm. okay. um, which is fairly reasonable. And this is, of course, um, south of town, not far as the Times Independent reports from Aggie Boulevard, which is you know close to the USU campus. Exactly. So potentially could provide housing uh, with folks going to school or or teaching there as well. Now, I know that, you know, as you reported, the city approved annexation. That doesn't mean that the city also approved this project. That has to go through the planning commission and a whole legislative process. Absolutely. First step of many. This is not a done deal by any means. Okay. Anything else to say about this article? I think, interestingly, the vote was four to one and Councillor Ronnie Durossery cast the lone no vote. And that was because of water concerns, which is Mm. something that Durossery has been bringing up more and more over the last couple of months. She was questioning whether it was wise to keep approving, you know, more and more developments when the city's still trying to wrap its arms Mm -hmm. around its water supply. As folks probably know, the Mm -hmm. water utility resource management plan, or the WERMP, as I love to call it, is is (laughs) underway. And that's also just trying to figure out water planning for the city for the next hundred years or so. Right. And a fair point, there there aren't any legislative standards right now, at least on the local level of like, what to approve or not approve based on water concerns. Mm. Let's move on to another story in this Times Independent. Where do you want to take us next? Um, Another political story on our front page. Okay, so this is related to uh, Grand County this time. Yes, uh, the Grand County Commission, I found, likely did not violate the Open and Public Meetings Act when the commission hit quorum at a May 25th open house to discuss the future of the Moab's Monument Valley Film Commission. Um, As folks may know, the Open and Public Meetings Act creates very specific standards around noticing and public comment and whatnot if there is a meeting of a a quorum of an elected body, such as a county commission or city council. All right, so, you know, why did the this quorum not necessarily meet the uh, violation standards of the Open and Public Meetings Act. Yeah, a couple different reasons. Um, and to be clear, this is just coming from this is coming from a man named Legrand Bitter, who's the executive director of the Utah Association of Special Districts. And he clarified that his comments were based on, you know, circumstances that I told him of right. what I understood about the event. Mm-hmm. So this is not like a definitive final ruling or anything. Sure. But he said, you know, it sounds like this was essentially a, a chance gathering. The meeting was convened by staff mm. and not specifically by the county commission. They had, you know, ordered staff to make the meeting, but they weren't the ones who formally organized mm-hmm. it or convened it. Um, also, the commissioners generally did not sit together, did not seem to discuss policy with one another. Um, and the meeting was intended for members of the public and for film stakeholders. Um, mm-hmm. But there were four commissioners in attendance, which is a quorum, which is where the concern arose. All right. Because um, this meeting wasn't noticed in the same way that other meetings at the county are. Exactly. Okay. And this is a big deal because there's a lot of you know discussion right now around the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission and its possible move to the Red Cliffs Foundations. There's a lot 
lot of interest here. Absolutely. And I think the Open and Public Meetings Act is kind of on everybody's mind since that audit came out a couple months ago, finding, you know, almost certain violations or at least violations in the spirit of the Mm -hmm. act down in San Juan County. And Grand County had been kind of included in that audit at the very beginning, but quickly moved out of the way when they found that there was no substantial evidence for any violations on Grand County. But I still think it's fresh in everybody's minds. And, you know, Bitter, uh, the man I spoke to, did say that, you know, his organization always invites entities to go above and beyond and just be very careful even in the appearance of impropriety. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's certainly something that's worth paying attention to. Sophia Fisher at The Times Independent. Subscription information and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. As our region faces impacts from ongoing drought and climate change, many Western communities are increasingly concerned about having enough water. The Moab Sun News recently dove deep into water use at the local golf course. Their reporter, Allison Harford, speaks with Molly Marcello about their coverage. So in April um, 2023, the Tribune reported on how much water golf courses across the state use. They obtained this data through public use records, and this was brought on because there was a failed bill this legislative session that would have required golf courses across the state to track and share their water use data. Mm. Because, you know, when we think about conserving water and water use, a lot of fingers get pointed to golf courses because they do use a lot of water and Mm -hmm. they use, you know, water for their greens and everything. Um, And so Moab has been thinking about water usage a lot, especially recently. Um, The city is currently drafting a water efficient landscaping ordinance, a water resource management plan, and a sustainability master plan that will all address water use in the valley. Wow. Um, and so when residents think about who uses the most water, you know, we think about hotel pools, like Moab has 46 hotels with pools, um, according mm-hmm. to Google Maps, and who knows how many more in um, Airbnbs and other overnight accommodations. Mm-hmm. Um, people think of restaurants, and people definitely think of our 18-hole public golf course. Right. So we dove into the Salt Lake Tribune Um, data to take a closer look at how much water the Moab Golf Course uses and also how much water residents use. And what we found is that since 2019, residents have used the most water within the city, Mm. according to data from the city's 2021 water conservation plan. So data for water use is um, there are two commonly used measurements, which is gallons per capita per day Mm. and also acre feet. Mm -hmm. So residents in 2020 used about 166 gallons per capita per day and commercial use added up to about like 90 gallons per capita per day and overnight accommodations account for about 16 percent of that commercial water Mm -hmm. use so it's really not it's you know residents are using um most of the water in the valley at this point and that could be, you know, because we have lawns or gardens. Or, yes, exactly. Yeah. And think about just doing your dishes every day. Sure. And flushing the toilet and right. using the shower. It's a lot of mm-hmm. water. Right. And so residential water use in Moab in 2020 added up to about 1,000 acre feet per year. And according to this data from the Salt Lake Tribune, the golf course used an average of 330 acre feet annually. Um, So it's about a third of what residents use, but it's still, 
it's still quite a bit of water. It's over 100 million gallons of water every year. Yeah, for one entity. You know, right. You reported on all the residents combined and all the commercial use combined. So for one entity, that is a lot of water. Right, exactly. So our reporter, Crystal, went out and talked to the golf course. And they said, you know, they are really trying to be a good neighbor. And so she also talked to our sustainability director, Alexi Lamb, and the president of the Utah Golf Course Superintendents Association, which in Utah, they're also really focusing on how to conserve water. And so the Salt Lake Tribune article was really trying to say, like, golf courses aren't the evil that we've kind of painted them to be. And then also in Moab, our golf course is trying really hard to try to do, like, water-efficient landscaping. Rob Jones, who's the general manager, said that they're letting some of the patches of grass go brown. Um, and especially in between holes, they're trying to get back to like desert landscaping. So really all their water only goes into the golf green. We kind of just wanted to add some information to the water use debate in the valley. Mm. And, you know, how does Moab's golf course water use stack up to like other golf courses? In the yeah, state? pretty low. Okay. So the golf course in the state that used the most water used around 1,085 acre feet per year. And that's the Copper Club Golf Course in Magna, Utah. Mm. Um, And I mean, the overall average acre feet in 2022 was 286 annually. So we're kind of like hovering right around the middle. But Mm. as far as, you know, golf courses that use a ton of water, we're really not close. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is so fascinating. You know, this is like something that I've heard anecdotally in the community sort of like, oh, well, what about the golf course? So Mm -hmm. this is this is great that you did a deep dive. Yeah. And especially as, you know, the city is collecting public comment on their water efficient landscaping ordinance. And they're also going to be collecting um, or just like discussing their management plans a lot more. I think this is something that residents should really keep in mind. Moving on, um, the Moves and News also has a piece about the museum's new exhibit. Yeah, so if you enter this South Gallery where they have the temporary exhibits, you'll feel transported into a trading post because all of these historic and contemporary textiles will be on display as part of this new exhibit called The People's Tapestry, Weaving Tradition in Navajo Culture. And it'll feature over 80 textile works made by Navajo artists. Wow, are these contemporary artists, historical pieces? Kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. It spans a huge timeline. Mm -hmm. Um, So I talked to Tara Barish, who's the museum's curatorial and collections manager. And she said, displaying historic alongside contemporary textiles demonstrates the ways that weaving traditions have changed, yet also remained consistently symbolic, vibrant, and most importantly, an essential aspect of life to the Navajo people. Um, So really, she wants this to be something that also adds context Mm -hmm. to kind of the conversation in this area. She wanted to make the museum... And this exhibit kind of looked like a trading post because she's thinking a lot about what visitors will think when they visit the exhibit, you know, Mm. because a lot of visitors to this area may come and then want some sort of souvenir Mm -hmm. and maybe they'll feel enticed by like something called, you know, like a Navajo rug. Um, But really, Barish wants to show people that there is like a true history to these items and she wants to give context to them and make sure people are really informed about our area. Um, And that's kind of what the museum does with everything, but especially with this exhibit, 
it is pulling together all sorts of textiles from all over the place and really when they're all put together they kind of create this timeline of Navajo culture and Navajo weaving um so it'll be really interesting and cool to see I feel like there's a parallel here setting it up like a trading post. It's reminding me of the Kachina, the Hopi Kachina doll exhibit. Yeah, definitely. Right, where they, um, you know, where you're taking something that in like industrial tourism mindset might mm-hmm. be considered a souvenir to pick up. And by interpreting it for visitors, it's adding cultural and historic context. Exactly. Yeah. And another aspect of this is that the museum will bring in um, people to give live demonstrations. So they'll have two weavers visiting um, in July and August, and also Sam Cunningham, who owns Cunnington Farms um, and takes care of this breed of Navajo churro sheep, which is this really important um, sheep breed, to creating these textiles. And so um, people will get to hear from all different sorts of people involved in the textile industry now, which will be, yeah, really cool. And this exhibit is going for how long? So it'll be up um, through the like late fall so people will have a while to see it and that's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the moab area you can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website kzmu.org or wherever you listen to the kzmu news podcast as always thanks for tuning in and supporting kzmu community-powered radio